My name is Brett. Uh, I've been on staff with Campus Outreach uh, for 13 years now, and uh, I got to spend some time with you a few months ago when you were at the uh, maybe beginning of your pastor search, and it was a real privilege to come up here, and it's been a real joy to hear that Pastor Eric, or Eric, or whatever you call him, we used to call him Coer, uh, is here. He's an old friend of mine, and, and uh, man, what a great man of God, and so it's, it's been really fun to hear that he's been a part uh, of your church in the last few months. Um, I uh, graduated college uh, in 2003. I became a Christian in college, and during my senior year, I kind of decided, you know what, I'm going to give this college ministry thing a try. Uh, it was an impactful season of life for me, and so I want to go invest some time into some other college students, and I thought at the, the, the moment that it would be about a three- or four-year investment. Uh, I had made the decision to come on staff with Campus Outreach, to move to Indiana, of all places. I was from Atlanta, Georgia, and, uh, and start ministering on the college campus. And um, two years into that, I was on one of our summer projects, which used to be in the lovely Panama City, Florida. And uh, I was preparing to, to resign, to quit. So two years into this, this journey, I was burnt out. Uh, I was really tired. Uh, my walk with God was almost uh, non-existent. Um, you see, I believed at that time, I just genuinely believed that if I wanted to grow in my spiritual life, then what that would require was diligent, consistent study of the Bible, an early morning prayer, in scripture memory, in uh, evangelistic boldness and rigor. And so I gave myself wholly to those things. I went really hard after those things because, again, in my paradigm, those were the avenues of growth in the Christian life. You do those things, and the harder you do them, and the more aggressive you do them, the, the more you grow and get to know God. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I, I really believe all those things are important means of grace, but you can probably sense from my description what those things led to. They led to me being absolutely exhausting. I wanted to be the best, right? And so I was going to go after those things the hardest. And about two years later, I was done and ready to quit. And I was on a summer project, leading it that summer. And we're in Panama City, Florida. And there was an older staff person there that I thought, you know, I'm going to get some time with that, that person and try to share some of this, let them know that I'm thinking about resigning, let, let them uh, ask them what they think I should do next. And so I was sitting in a uh, uh, a restaurant with this guy, and, and I was kind of unpacking some of this and unpacking just the deadness of my heart. And I said, you know, maybe I should transition off staff, and, and maybe I'm just not qualified. Maybe I'm not fit for this because I obviously don't know how to even walk with God as I'm ministering to college students. And uh, he did something really interesting. He started to ask me a set of questions that I'll never forget. Um, he said, Brett, uh, when I say Romans 12, 1 and 2, what do you think of? And as I mentioned, I was diligent in my scripture memory, so I was like, this is great. You know, I'm going to have a little moment of self-righteousness and evidence uh, my scripture memory to this guy. And so I ripped it off, and he said, what stands out to you from that passage? I said, you know, don't be conformed to this world. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. He said, okay. He said, um, uh, okay, what, what about 2 Timothy 2.2? Tell me what 2 Timothy 2.2 says. And if, if you know anything about our organization, that's one of our flagship verses. And so I ripped that off for him, and I was proud I could do that. And he said, okay, Brett, what is, uh, what is 2 Timothy 2 verse 1? 
And I didn't know it. I knew verse 2. I didn't know verse 1. He said, okay. And he went through a series of verses like this. He took me to some other passages, and he would ask me what stood out from the passage I would share with him. And at the end of his little diagnostic he did for me, he said, okay, Brett, here's what I know. He's like, I don't know whether or not you should stay on staff and work with college students. What I do know or what I think I'm hearing is this. He said, you've forgotten your need for the gospel. I said, what do you mean? And so he went back to Romans 12, and he said, I noticed all the things that stood out to you were kind of the commands, the imperatives of Scripture, but what about that first little clause that says, therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer your body as a living sacrifice. Why did you skip over that part? I don't know. And he said in 2 Timothy 2, 2, you knew that one, but verse 1 says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. How come you didn't memorize that part? I don't know. And he kind of went through God's word with me, and he would show me that everywhere there's a, there's a command of God, you can also find that this positional reality, these, these deep gospel truths. You think even of the Ten Commandments, right? The commands of God. Well, what does Exodus 19, 5 and 6 say? That you are my treasured possession. I've set you free from slavery. What always precedes these imperatives of the Christian life is the gospel, God's redemptive work. So he said, you see, Brett, you've forgotten your need for the gospel. I didn't know what was going to happen from that point forward because that conversation uh, totally disassembled my understanding of the Christian life. And and, and since then, uh, a constant rediscovering of what the gospel means for me today has meant everything to me and it sustained my walk with God. So maybe you, like me, some of you... uh, are sitting there, and if you are honest with yourself, um, you've quit. And that you have uh, fond memories of Christ. Maybe you remember going on that youth retreat like we just heard about, and the emotional high of it, and the aggressiveness of your walk with God back then, and how you would interact with classmates as a student, or even younger, or later on in life. But maybe there's some of you in just kind of the quietness of your pew right now, if you're really honest with yourself, uh, you'd have to say that you've kind of already thrown in the towel. Maybe some of you don't even know if you actually really believe this anymore. But you go to church, and you bring your family, and you pray before meals, and you do the things that you know that you should do, that Jesus is about as relevant to you as, you know, your mechanic. Sorry, mechanics. Maybe for others of you, and maybe a larger group, is not that you've actually quit throwing in the towel, but maybe you've just settled. I mean, think, think to yourself for a moment. When was the last time you deeply longed for Jesus? Or stood in awe? and wonder of his work in your life? When was the last time you would describe your faith and your walk with God with the words zeal and passion and joy and excitement? When was that for you? And maybe you haven't quit, but somewhere you've just kind of decided, you know, that vibrant faith, 
kind of gone. So again, there, there's a shell of Christian activities, but inside there's not a whole lot of life anymore, like Matthew 23, like with whitewashed tombs. We're living on our lives, settled. Here's my question. What happened to your walk with God? And the answer I want to submit to you this morning is the same answer I heard that day uh, many years ago now was that you have forgotten your need for the gospel. You don't need some new spiritual fad. There's no new book on the shelves that's going to fix your walk with God. There's not some, you know, a series of sermons that you need to listen to on podcasts that will just kind of come in and, and clean house for you. What you need is to be refreshed by the gospel of God. And there's hope. There's hope. If you've quit, or if you've settled, or if you even just feel like this summer has been a kind of a slow, lazy summer, there's hope. God is in the business of redemption. So we're going to look at Romans 1.16. And, uh, you know, because of, of the somewhat late notice, uh, I didn't prepare any slides. So we're going to do this old school style. We are actually going to open our Bibles or our Bible apps. There's no scriptures on the slides. I was just telling my daughter that, that she's going to actually have to sound out some of the words down there. And, and uh, she won't have anything to help her with the spelling. You won't either. Nothing to help you with the spelling this morning. So we're actually going to look at, at the Bible together and look at Romans 1.16. And my hope, what I've been praying for you these last couple days, is that God's Word would breathe life into some dry bones this morning. That we'd begin to experience some revival. So I'm just going to read this passage and then we're going to do what we can to, to spend some time in it. Verse 16. It's the only passage I want to read this morning. This is what it says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And I know right there I just lost some of you, because what you're thinking is what I would be thinking is that, oh great, here's like, here's like the college minister evangelist guy coming in, and to revive our walk with God, he's going to make us feel really guilty that we don't share our faith enough, right? Because this is what Romans 1.16 is often referring, used to refer to, is I'm not ashamed of the gospel, uh, therefore go share it. You know, that's, that's often the messages you hear around Romans 1.16. But I think that unfortunately the church in general has kind of neutered the power in the implication of this passage for us. Is this passage for the lost? Yes, it's supposed to equip us, strengthen us with confidence and boldness and courage and as we're postured towards an outside, unbelieving world. Absolutely, this passage is for that. But this morning, the evangelism I want to talk about, the proclaiming of the gospel that I want to talk about, is an evangelism to the church, to us, to our own hearts and our own souls. It's very clear from the context of this passage that Paul actually really does have two audiences in mind, right? Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. There's the unbelieving world summarized for Paul. Both to the wise and to the foolish. He adds some descriptors. Then look at verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
Who are the you? Well, look at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. You, the church of Rome, you, Kate Bible Chapel, even though your faith is proclaimed throughout this whole region, Paul would be coming to preach the gospel to you. Look at verse 13. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented, in order that I might reap some of the harvest among you as well among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul's intention here in this passage that's so often used to motivate us to go share our faith, part of the motivation for writing this, for speaking this to the church in Rome was also to remind us of our own need for the gospel. You, church, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God. We can also even look in that passage. I just want to mention this because I think this is so interesting too. Because in verse 16, if you're reading it, you would expect something that's not there. If you're reading it, you would say, for, for I, under this kind of old lens of understanding it, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believed. No, it's not past tense. Meaning it's not just for those who are unbelievers, it's the power just for them. So once they believe, it can become the power of God to save them. For all those who believes, believe, it's a present active verb. It's emphasizing like the continual aspect of that verb. So the gospel is the power of God for all of us who believe, who are believing also. So Paul is not just stating Romans 1.16 merely to demonstrate how a Christian should be postured outwardly with the gospel, but he also wants to demonstrate its present application to our lives. Okay? So let's look at this passage with a little bit of a new lens. Let's look at that first clause. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, one of the reasons we so often apply this passage uh, to, to motivate us for evangelism is because that phrase is very common to our experience when it comes to sharing our faith, isn't it? We're kind of ashamed and afraid sometimes. It's a scary and risky thing to share the gospel with people around us. And so when we read that, we immediately think Paul must be talking about um, the, the shame or the fear we feel as we share the gospel with, with unbelievers. It's easy to understand it when you're reading it from that lens, and I think that's definitely true but he's also stating this to the church, if you remember. So why would Paul feel the need to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, church? I mean, wouldn't you just expect the church to say, well, of course you're not ashamed of the gospel. We don't want to be ashamed of the gospel either. That's why we, have, that's why we listen to you, Paul, because you're not ashamed of the gospel. But, but Paul feels this need to say to the church, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he feel the need to say that, I think that there was a temptation for Paul to be ashamed about the simplicity and the supposed redundancy of his message to his hearers. I think Paul kind of felt ashamed that he was just preaching the same old message. I mean, I know, you know, this happens now. You know, Eric is going to come back in town. And, and Dave or one of the elders is going to say, he's going to ask, how, you know, how did Brett do? And Dave's going to be like, well, he just, just spoke on the gospel. And Eric's going to be like, oh, 
Okay, well, we'll never ask him back again, you know. Like, just the gospel. Isn't that like just 101? Can you imagine? Paul's coming in town. Oh, you got to hear Paul preach in the public school. What did he preach on? You remember that thing you, you read in his letter a few years back? Yeah, it was just that all over again. It was just the gospel. I mean, can, you, can you imagine that there would be a sense of, of, of insecurity? Like, maybe I don't have anything else to offer other than just kind of the, the 101 or just the milk of God's Word. And we know that Paul felt this, uh, this temptation to be ashamed of it because if you look at some of his other epistles, he says things like this. Over in Philippians 3.1, he, he says to the church of Philippi, Rejoice, I will say it again, rejoice in the Lord. Then he says something interesting. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, but it is good for you. Why do you feel like you needed to say that? Because I guarantee there are people in the church of Philippi who are thinking, why is he just writing the exact same thing? Over in 1 Corinthians 2, right, where he's talking about the message and he's not coming with fancy words, right? Why does he feel the need to say that? Because the culture where the church in Corinth was wanted people who could, you know, orate with fancy words, and Paul wasn't going to do that. And so he might have been tempted to feel a little bit of shame. I'm just bringing you the message of the cross, he says, to the church in Corinth. So I think there was a temptation for him to feel ashamed because of the simplicity and the redundancy of his message. And I, which makes us ask this question, why did Paul feel the need to just preach that message over and over and over again. Here's what I think the answer is. is because his audience and you and me need to hear it over and over and over again. Why does Paul feel the need to defend himself? I'm not ashamed. Why does he feel the need to defend himself? It's because his audience and you and myself falsely believe that we don't need to hear it anymore. Or to put it another way, we would never say this. But internally, I think that we just generally assume we've kind of graduated from the gospel. We can move on to the other aspects of the Christian life. We've graduated the gospel. That's for something that you, you talk about the gospel with people who don't know about Christ. You talk about other things with people who are actually growing in your relationship with Christ. There was a girl on campus once, I'll never forget this interaction. Um, I was just walking on campus and one of our students who had recently become a Christian uh, was approaching me and she looked up at me red-faced and she was, had been crying and was so upset and distraught and I asked her what was wrong and, you know, of course, as you can imagine, there's late assignments, there's a failed test, there's conflict with roommate, there's all kinds of stuff happening uh, in her life at that moment. It's just overwhelmed her, and she's crying as she's walking back to her dorm room. I don't know what came over me. I'm usually more gentle. Actually, this is before I had daughters, so I, I probably wasn't more gentle than this. But I, I looked at her, and I said, uh, what do you think your greatest need is right now? And she went through a list, right? I need more time to study. I need for this girl to forgive me or stop being so dramatic. And she went through. These are, these are some of my greatest needs. I said, you're wrong. Your greatest need right now is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In all peace, in all perspective, in all relational capacity, all flows out of 
a deeper understanding of what Jesus has accomplished for us. That's what your greatest need is right now. And so for you, I don't know what's going on in your life at all. Um, probably some things that are horrific for some of you. Uh, I know many of you are stressed out, summer travel or whatever. Your greatest need right now and always will always be the gospel. Because the gospel, if you remember, is what united us to the Father. It gave us more of God. It gave us all of God to enjoy. Um, what are you talking about, Brett? What do you mean? Um, look at verse 17. Paul goes on. He says, For in it, the righteousness of God, this is the gospel, for in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In many of your Bibles, maybe it doesn't say faith for faith, but maybe it says faith beginning and ending. What is Paul saying there? I'd always wondered, that's just weird language. We don't use language like that. So what is Paul saying there? What he's saying there is really clear, it's really simple, that there was a day when you started your journey of faith, and there's a day you'll end your journey of faith, right? We no longer will need faith when we're looking at Jesus by sight. And from those two bookends, you know what you're going to need the whole way through? is faith in the gospel. In other words, the gospel isn't just the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the A through Z of the Christian life. The gospel isn't just the starting blocks of the Christian life so that then you can go and live a Christian life with all of the spiritual disciplines and fellowship and, and all the different ways to grow in that walk. That's not what the gospel is. That's not just the starting block. In fact... The gospel is the starting block. It's the entire race. And it's, the, and it's the finish line also. What do I mean? Well, look at passages like Romans 10.9, right? That's a great starting block gospel passage. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? I've shown that verse to hundreds of college students. That's a great starting block verse for the gospel. You'll be saved if you just believe in the Lord Jesus. The gun fires. But then look at passages like Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Just as you received him, starting block, what does it say? So walk in him. And then, not only is it the race, but it's also the finish line. Look at passages like Revelation 5, 12. What are we going to be doing when we, when we cross the ticker tape, right? When the race is over for us, what are we going to be doing? What are we going to be focused on? Well, Romans 5, verse 11 through 12 says this. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. The gospel to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We never graduate from this picture of the gospel, which is the spotless lamb that was slain. 
Why is this so critical to understand? So what I want to do is is kind of take this from the theoretical to the practical. Why is this so critical to understand? And hopefully, if there's still some question marks in your head in terms of where I'm actually taking this, hopefully this will solidify it. I I wrote this down because I want to get this really clear. And and I'm sorry I don't have a slide, so I'll just repeat it twice and we'll move on from here. But this is something I, I, I believe. Genuine Christian growth and transformation. Okay, so hear what I'm saying there. Genuine Christian growth in transformation. I use the word genuine because I feel like there's a need to nuance that because I think in our kind of Western church culture, we have all kinds of paradigms for what Christian growth looks like and Christian maturity looks like. Genuine Christian growth in transformation does not occur apart from the consistent and intentional application of the gospel to our souls. Genuine Christian growth and transformation does not occur apart from the consistent and intentional application of the gospel to our souls. Let me state that negatively uh, just to help us kind of understand where I'm trying to, to go here is that unless there has been consistent and intentional application of the gospel to your soul. Think about that. Has there been consistent and intentional application of the gospel to your soul? Unless there's been consistent and intentional application of the gospel to our souls, then I don't think we are experiencing genuine Christian growth and transformation. I think we've settled And I think if you settle for too long, eventually you just quit. You still show up on Sundays or to Bible studies or prayer groups, but they're just activity. And I think the sad reality in many churches is that there are people who've been Christians for a long time and they look really Christian and they sound very Christian. Maybe they even think theologically very Christian. But they don't treasure Christ anymore than they did years ago. There's not genuine growth and transformation taking place any longer. I think we all run the risk of that. So how do we consistently and intentionally apply the gospel? How do you do it? I think the passage answers it, and I'm going to look at it here. But let me just say this, and I'll repeat this too a couple times. The the way you apply the gospel is you allow yourself to be exposed by it. You allow yourself to be exposed by it. Uh, The gospel teaches us, one, that we are more sinful and wicked than we could ever imagine, and two, simultaneously, that we are more loved and cherished than we could ever have dreamed possible. That's what the gospel teaches us. We are more sinful than we could ever imagine. The, the depths of our depravity and sin just keep going deeper and deeper. And the more we dig into it, the more we see down there. It's just, it's not pretty. But through what Christ has accomplished for us, the gospel also teaches that we are more loved and cherished despite ourselves than we could ever even come close to comprehending. And the problem is this. We sing about God's love. We love talking about God's love. But for so many of us, we don't really even 
see our need for God's love anymore. Because we spend so little time being exposed by that first reality, which is that we're more sinful than we could ever imagine. See, we've gotten used to just playing the Christian game. Right? Like outwardly, we look Christian. So I can kind of hide it from others. And then as I'm starting to hide it from others, then something else begins to happen. Your heart grows callous and you just begin to overlook it yourself. You don't even really care about the ways in which we begin to just mold to our flesh day in and day out. One commentator said this about the gospel. I just, I just really like this. According to Scripture, God deliberately designed the gospel Listen to that, designed the gospel in such a way as to strip me of pride and leave me without any grounds for boasting in myself whatsoever. See, the gospel makes us come face to face with our sin and weakness. And in our pride, we often hate to admit to ourselves, especially to others, that we are sinful and weak and still in need. We're still in need. It never has changed. So just some diagnostic questions. Are you aware of the sinful tendencies of your flesh? I feel like we've got to start there. Are you aware? If you're not, I'm sure your spouse can help you. Or older children, you know. Like when I say that, what are some of your sin struggles? What are things that you struggle with currently, presently? Could you answer with clarity and maybe even some precision and Maybe even some grief and sadness and conviction. I was just at Dunkin' Donuts with, with Addison, my daughter, and I couldn't believe it. We walk in there, there's a lady in front of us. She's on her way to church, not this church. I, I overheard that I, before I shared this. And, and she was getting um, a, a box of donuts for her, I guess, Sunday school class or something like that. The guy puts donuts in the box. She asks for the amount, and he tells her, and he says, okay, I'm gonna, and he, she pulls out a checkbook. So she st- he's like, ma'am, I'm sorry, but we can't take checks here at Dunkin' Donuts. You know? um, and she got so frustrated. She berated him. Here is this lady getting donuts to take to her Sunday school class, and in that moment, she saw nothing wrong with the fact that she just berated the donut guy because his store, not even him, just the store won't take checks. She had to use her credit card. Unbelievable, right? Can you believe she had to use her credit card? And the reason I bring that up is because I don't even think she was aware in that moment how awful that was. I, I mean, this... this, this Poor donut guy, you know, he just got berated for not, you know, he, it's not his decision. I'm sure he would have loved to take her check after the first five minutes of, you know, getting berated by her, you know. Are you aware of sinful tendencies, the, the struggles that continue to eat away at your soul? Are you even aware? And if you are, do you let others know about them? Or are you, here's the word, too ashamed? Is the gospel not real enough to you? That you, you genuinely believe you are loved by God and so regardless of what anyone else in this room thinks of me or what they know about me, I am loved by the Father, I'm a son or daughter and I can confess my sin, I can be transparent, I can be weak and known because I'm loved. So are you aware? Do you let others know about them? 
if you answer no to one or both of those questions, you're probably not enjoying the Lord a whole lot, much less growing. How can I say that? Look at Isaiah 57, 15. I mean, I'm just going to pick two, but we could spend all day here. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is put together and goes to church every Sunday. No. Who does God, the high and holy one, dwell with? The contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Another familiar one, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your strength, in your togetherness. No, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Be weak. Paul then says, listen, this is crazy. What if the church did this? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I will let myself be exposed, is what Paul says. So that, listen to the same language as he uses in Romans, so that the power of God may rest on me. The power of God. That's what he goes on to say in Romans 1.16, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God. What do you think of when you hear that phrase, power of God? I had a slide to show you what I think of, but I couldn't get it here in time. And so it was a kind of you know, one of those images of outer space and a star exploding. And I, that's what I think of when I think of power of God. I asked Addison on the car ride over here, what do you think of when you, think, when you hear the phrase power of God? And she said, I think of the world being created. And that's, that's often what we think of. We just took a family trip out west and saw the Grand Tetons. That makes you think of the power of God, right? Did you know that in Scripture, when the phrase power of God is used, it's almost exclusively used to, in a ref, as a reference to the person and completed work of Jesus Christ? Listen to what one person says about that. Such a description indicates that the gospel is not only powerful, but that it is the ultimate entity in which God's power resides, resides and does its greatest work. The gospel is the ultimate entity with which the power of God resides and does its work. You guys know what that, many of you have heard people talk about that, that word power. The Greek word is dunamis, which has similar root words to words like dynamite. It would be wrong to kind of make a one-to-one comparison, by the way, that the gospel is like dynamite, you know, because, because it just has the same root. But, It is important to point out that you can make some comparisons. If you're experiencing the gospel, it's going to reshape, it's going to reconstruct, it's going to rearrange, and it often does it in a very strong and often explosive manner. That's what that word means. So when was the last time you experienced the power of God? If it's described that way, right? Reshaping, reconstructing, rearranging, but often done in a strong and explosive manner. When was the last time that was your experience? That was the last time, by the way, that you tasted the power of God. That was the last time, by the way, that you tasted the gospel. 
So how can you experience the gospel regularly? This is going to be redundant, but let me just say it again. Allow yourself to be exposed by it. I just said it earlier. Allow yourself to be exposed by the gospel. Also, allow yourself to be exposed by the power of God. It's kind of the same thing, but, but let me help you with this just a little bit because this has been a really helpful practice of mine the past few years is, is spending some time as I'm processing and thinking, uh, thinking about surface sin in my life. You guys know what I mean by surface sin. Surface sin is that um, <laughs> we've got a funny illustration in our family, and I'm trying to measure the appropriateness of the illustration for you. But, you know, we've got three little girls. I'm just going to do it. Uh, I'm visiting, so um, I've got three little girls, and you know when they were a little bit younger, they liked taking baths together, and they'd always sit in a bath. And for those of you who have children, you know when they're in the bathtub, when something bubbles up, something happened below the surface, right? I don't know if everybody caught that, or people are just appalled that I would actually use that illustration. That's what surface sin is, by the way. You lash out with impatience or anger or frustration. You gossip with envy or jealousy. Or you lust. That's just a surface sin. What that means is that there's something below the surface going on. Deeper in here. And what you can always trace it back to, always trace it back to, is a denial of the worship of Jesus and replacing it with the worship of self. So all, why I say that is because all those little surface sins that your kids see and your spouses see and that you feel ashamed of when they happen, you know, they're not just little surface sins. You have bowed your knee to an idol in that moment, and that idol is yourself. So imagine this for me. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that, he prays actually for the church in Ephesus that the eyes of their heart would be open to the glories and the riches of the gospel. So I want to I try something here to open our eyes of our heart to the glories of the gospel. Imagine whatever surface sin uh, that, that came into your mind. And, and after church today, as we're about to wrap up, we all leave and we go out the doors and uh, we're heading to lunch or whatever. And, and as we open the doors to the parking lot, there's just a, there's a backup. Everybody has stopped, and there's a line backing up through the lobby because out in the parking lot, we are witnessing the historical reality of Jesus being crucified. You guys do know that happened, like in history, in a real time and place. Jesus hung on a cross. See, oftentimes that's just not part of our day-to-day experience. We don't, we don't believe that it really happened. But just imagine for a moment that we actually are seeing it take place in front of us. What would you do? Now the Bible calls this, what we're seeing there, a piece uh, representing the power of God, Him dying for the sins of humanity, and the very sins that we just thought about had popped into our head just a few minutes ago that, that was really the idolatry. There He is hanging on the cross for the sins of humanity in my very own sin. What happened? What would you do? What posture would you take internally? What, what posture would you take physically in that moment? See, that's why words like the ones used in Isaiah 57 make sense, because he uses words like lowly and contrite. That's what it looks like to experience the power of God. 
the gospel. The verse ends with the, the clause for the salvation of all who believe. And, and just real simply what I wanted to say about that is that word salvation has gotten kind of a, a um, uh, it's gotten misinterpreted in our Western church vernacular. And, and we see the word salvation and we think of the word that you often hear in kind of church world, saved, right? So when we read that passage, for the salvation of all who believe, we're thinking evangelistically so that that person can be saved. But that's not what salvation means. Salvation means much more than that. We've reduced it to just mean justification. But as one commentator said, that salvation is actually a general term in which justification, redemption, and glorification are particular aspects. See, salvation isn't just the moment that you were made right with God when you were reconciled to him, you were justified and made right. Our salvation is a bigger picture. Listen to what someone else says. The salvation Paul spoke of is more than forgiveness of sin. It includes the full scope of deliverance from the results of Adam's sin. It involves justification, being set right with God, sanctification, growth and holiness, and glorification, the ultimate transformation into the likeness of Christ. For the salvation of all who believe. What do we need for the salvation? What do we need for our salvation? We need the gospel. So even though I had been a Christian for quite a few years going into that summer project, um, what I needed wasn't to quit. What I needed was to, don't hear what I'm not saying here, I needed to be saved again. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that, that once we've trusted in Jesus that we ever lose that. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is that like, I need to be saved every single day from my sinful flesh and all the things that I want to give my time and thought and energies to and that then I proceed to do throughout the day and week in ignoring God, ignoring Christ. I need to be saved from those things. And when I am saved from those things, my soul is refreshed and the joy, and the life, and the vibrancy that's promised in the gospel become mine again. The joy, and the life, and the vibrancy of the gospel can become yours again. So if you've settled, it's because you viewed the gospel in the past tense. It's the starting blocks. If you've quit, it's because you viewed the gospel as the ABCs. Maybe what you need is to just bend your knees to Christ again. With all of your sinful tendencies, all the residue of the flesh that still make up our existence, and remind yourself that Christ died for you. And in that truth, we find our hope, we find our joy, we find our being. My daughters are, as they're getting older, it's a lot of fun to start having meaningful interaction with them. And there's a worship song that we listen to at home sometimes. And in that song, um, the the word uh, the, the song the words of the song include the word relentless and one of my daughters asked daddy what does that word mean 
You know, they're realizing they're singing stuff now, and they start, they, and this is also dangerous too, we've got to watch what's on the radio, but they're singing stuff now, and then they'll start, I'm like, what? wait a second, I just said relentless. What does relentless mean? You know? And uh, at the time, we were reading a book over and over with our daughters uh, called Runaway Bunny. I don't know if there's any Runaway Bunny fans. Um, it's, much, it's, it's for younger kids. It was actually written by a Christian author. It's this beautiful picture of this mother bunny who just stays in pursuit of this little child bunny who keeps trying to run away. So the child's like, I'm going to run, I'm going to fly away. And the mother bunny's like, okay, well, I will be the tree so that when you want to fly home, you can nest in my branches. You know? I'm going to run away. I, you know, and, and, and the mother, for every um, uh, rebellious attitude of the baby bunny says, okay, well, I'll, I'll be here, I'll be after you. I'll be in pursuit of you. And so I told my daughter, that's kind of what relentless means. Relentless means is that, you know, especially in the context of this song, is God is just coming after us and coming after us. He's relentless in his pursuit of us. And so she was putting some pieces together, and so she said this. So it's kind of like we're playing hide-and-go-seek with God. And I was like, yeah, unfortunately, that's kind of what it's like. You know, we, we run off and we hide and we think that we've kind of sheltered ourselves off and we've at least protected our image and people around us don't think anything internally is in decay. And then God finds us, breaks us gently, restores us. I, I just am convinced if, if, if you're anything like me, you wrestle and struggle with wanting to just stay hidden from God. You know, I, I don't know for different reasons, and you've probably gotten really good at staying hidden, right? You know what to do outwardly so that no one realizes that internally you're just hiding and dying. You're not experiencing any life. This morning, be found by God again. So we have the opportunity uh, to respond and apply this this morning. And I want to apply it in two ways. One is, you know, when you're visiting, you don't get to stick around and, and, and answer questions or think and pray with people a whole lot. And so I want to encourage you to, to add a book to your library if you, if you don't have this one. It's a really thin one. It's an easy read. It's called A Gospel Primer. It, it's almost a little devotional in nature. But this book, in terms of a way to help you experience the gospel, uh, does an awesome job of just unpacking kind of day-to-day dynamics and then inserting gospel truths into it. And so if you don't have it, uh, I think it's pretty inexpensive. I would have brought some for you if, I had, if we had a little bit more notice, so maybe next time. But, um, you know, add that to your library and into your rhythms of life. And the second thing we get to do in application and response this morning is take communion together. Um, God's mercies are new every morning, and God is in the business of redemption. Right? So regardless of where you are spiritually right now, do you realize that, that with the bending of a knee, physically or metaphorically, with the bending of your knee to the reality of God and the gospel, he begins the redemptive process, the restorative process. You know, you, you remember the, the story of the prodigal son. He is waiting for you to return. He's watching the hillside, the mountainside. He's waiting for you to start walking back. And the minute he sees you, what does he do according to that story? He runs to you to embrace you. And with communion, we have the opportunity to initiate that. Communion is a commemorative meal. It's instituted by the Lord himself in order to remind us of the gospel. So that however often we partake in it, we can remember that there was actually a point in time in history when somebody died for us. 
Communion is also a family meal. We enjoy the meal together as a family of believers in Christ. If you haven't experienced the power of the gospel in your life, today would be a great day to bend your knee to him and join us in this meal. And communion is also a transformative meal. All of those sin patterns, all those surface sins that just keep boiling over and up in our life, if we will continue to remind ourselves of the gospel through opportunities like this, those things begin to quiet in our soul over time. We experience growth. We experience life again. We don't struggle with the shame of all those sin patterns. Nothing ever changes in our lives apart from the Holy Spirit's deep application of the gospel into our hearts. And as you come and take the meal this morning, my prayer for you is that you would spend some time thinking about that. The Spirit, asking the Spirit to come and apply these truths of the gospel, the very same truths that, believed, that, that you believed when you first became a Christian, apply them to your life anew. From the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took some bread, and I usually have some bread to do this with, but you can imagine, right? And, it's amazing. Again, in real time and space, he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body. So when you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. He took a glass. He poured some wine. He said, this wine represents the blood of my new covenant. So when you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And as you do these things, know this. This is interesting what it says in Corinthians, right? You are proclaiming my death. You are sharing the gospel to yourself until I come again.